Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Brian Chasnov, investigative reporter. Um, we're recording this on the morning of uh, Monday, September 13th. A uh, week from today, we're going to have our third a special session for the legislature this year. And uh, the, the primary focus of this session is redistricting. And um, so we're really excited to be joined by someone who I think is going to help us make sense of this redistricting process. Uh, our guest today is uh, Lydia Camarillo, who's the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project and the William C. Velasquez Institute. And she's also the chair of the Texas Latino Redistric Redistricting Task Force. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I wanted to start off by, by uh, asking about the, 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 our congressional um, maps. We're, we're gaining um, two new congressional districts uh, in this cycle. Uh, and some people thought we were going to gain more, maybe gain three. And, and I'm interested in your thoughts on that. But the census recorded uh, you know, four million additional uh, people in the Texas population. 95% of them are people of color. I believe about half um, are Latinos. Um, with all this in mind, looking at where the real population, um, the concentration of the population is really happening, where would you like to see these two new congressional um, districts drawn? Well, thank you for um, setting the stage. Uh, Texas, uh, once again, wins the most congressional seats this cycle after the United States uh, did its 10-year count on how many people reside in each state. Uh, last cycle in 2010, after the census recorded its uh, numbers for each state, uh, Texas got uh, one, four new Latino seats. This time it's two. We were expecting three to four. I personally thought it was four. Maldiv believed it was three. And it was because we have seen a growth of both Latino population and a growth of people coming from other states uh, to Texas. The question is still unresolved whether or not that's the true number that they counted because of the undercount. We believe there's a major undercount, but that's not a conversation that we're really having today. It's going uh, the redistricting is going to be determined by the current numbers that have been reported. Uh, Texas did uh, gain two million more Latinos. One of the things that, that people talk a lot about is, I, I think, a kind of a, a a central theme in the redistricting debates that happen is about the idea of having uh, communities of interest united. Um, one of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, how uh, and I, during some of these uh, hearings that the uh, Senate redistricting committee has had, you know, people will point out that they're that Austin is basically like, you know, chopped up into I think maybe six districts or so, um, and you know, we have a, we have one district in San Antonio, which is represented by Lloyd Doggett, which has part of San Antonio, has part of Austin. Uh, Chip Roy's district is in that category. Are, what kinds of things would you like to see? Oh, and I'm curious what how you how you view that issue, the issue of trying to have um, kind of uniting, uh, you know, what people call communities of, of interest together. Well, community of interest means a number of things to different people, depending on who's uh, making that determination. Right. Uh, during the last the last uh, uh, redistricting process, which I was also the chair at that time, what we meant by communities of interest is that the Latinos that reside in San Antonio are the, are have similar interests as those in Austin. 
which is mm-hmm. why it made sense to draw the district the way it was drawn. The, the, the drawing that we proposed for 35 was, I think, a little bit more elegant, if you will. <laughs> uh, but uh, the court uh, asked us to use the uh, Texas map, which if we, you recall, I think we need to set the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, last cycle, there were seven my, my Latino majority seats that were uh, part of the determination and four seats were gained. We expected that at least two, if not three, would become Latino, given that uh, 4.3 million people uh, increased over the the last from 2000 to 2010. And out of that, 65 percent was Latino and 95, 90 percent was resulting of Latino, Blacks, Asian and other communities mm-hmm. of color. In fact, when the uh, and we, by the way, proposed various maps, including one that allowed to to have 10 Latino majority seats. The state then draws its maps and it retrogresses the 23rd, which means that they gave us the same number of Latinos, but they took away performing precincts in the El Paso area, más o menos, because it has also El Paso. It stretches from San Antonio to El Paso. Uh, And then we sued because we went from seven to six. We went to court and then we ended up with uh, the 23rd being fixed and then gaining two seats, which was the 35 and the 33. The 33 is important because that's another area where people wonder what is communities of interest there. Mm, right. We argue that the Latinos that live in Dallas have similarities of those that live in uh, Fort Worth. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. A map, mm-hmm. the, the map was drawn so that the 33rd, which is now held by VC, Congressman VC, would be a Latino uh, seat. Uh, so we're very uh, ready and prepared for this cycle. Uh, to your question about where do we think we're going to have some growth, there was growth in four counties, primarily uh, Harris, uh, Dallas, mm-hmm. Bear County, uh, Travis, and Tarrant County. We think that uh, there should be an opportunity to draw a seat either in San Antonio, mm-hmm. either in uh, Houston, or in Dallas. It's going to be interesting because we have to remind ourselves that the Latino community is, in fact, in the Valley and El Paso and San sure. Antonio and all the way down to. So so because of that, we have to think about how do you make sure that you create a seat that is uh, not only Latino majority, but that has performing seats, performing precincts, and that has uh, a connection with community of interest. The congressional seats this time around, because uh, the state grew, are going to be 100,000 more people. Mm-hmm. So that's about 100, 770,000 uh, more people. Wow. Each each district will be drawn that way. That's the same case with the state Senate and the state House seats. So we have to look to areas where there's an opportunity to sustain the current gains, which is nine Latino majority seats respect the gains by the other communities, the black and Asian communities, and figure out where we can now draw new lines. That's our challenge. Lydia, what, what partisan battles do you see ahead in, in terms of, you know, between Democrats and Republicans with redistricting? Every redistricting, there is a, a divide between the interest of what uh, the partisans want and the Latino community wants. If we were talking about Chicago, which is controlled and run similarly to Texas, which is uh, by the legislature, 
the Democrats over there are going to be concerned about the same thing that Republicans are concerned here in Texas, uh, sustaining its incumbents, Republican power, and over there, the Democrats, and also extending their power, which means that they use the Latinos, Blacks, and other communities to sustain their power. There is already an effort by some who argue that there's going to be a Republican seat in the Valley. I don't know how you draw that since mm-hmm. um, there are uh, there are a lot of uh, Latinos and the argument is based on the 2020 elections that there were more Latinos that voted for Trump. However, if you really look at the, the districts, both 28, 15 and 34, you'll note that not only is it, yes, they are Latino majority seats, but they're not 100 percent Latino. It includes white voters. So one might argue that they will put a seat there that is majority white, not Latino. However, uh, this cycle, we don't have um, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act to protect us, but we do have Section 2 of the Voting Rights. And so we will be fighting to protect the 28th, the 15th, the 34th, the 23, the 33, the 35, and of course the 20th. I don't know if the 29th, I forgot, Houston, yeah. perdón, Houston. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the voting rights act because this is really the first cycle, uh, redistricting cycle we've had, I guess, in maybe 60 years where um, yes. you, Section 5, the, the, the enforcement really for for um, uh, the, the pre-clearance provisions which applied to Texas and made Texas get federal a- approval whenever they changed their maps or, or changed their voting laws. Um, you talked about uh, section two. So uh, could you explain a little bit? I, 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 my understanding is that, the, that now the burden is going to be more on individuals or organizations um, suing or challenging, um, you know, maps that they consider to be, you know, that they have issues with rather than having the sort of federal oversight. Is that is that basically what's happened? Well, I think there's a mix of that. Yes. Um, I think that the black community uh, doesn't have section five because they're not protected under Section 2. The Section 2 is really about language rights. So the Asian and Latino community, and we're speaking today about the Latino community, uh, is going to be able to use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to protect its districts. Section 5, which, as you know, as a result of the Shelby versus Holder uh, uh, United States Supreme Court ruling in 2013, basically said in that ruling, among other things, that because we have had a black president, there must be no racism in America. And if uh, the Congress thinks that there is still is, they must adjust and reauthor Section 4, which determines which are the jurisdictions that have discrimination. Uh, in, my, in our case, it would have to, we would have to say that it's Texas, Alabama, Missouri, parts of California. There's the, it, believe it or not, California, New York is... And Illinois, as progressive as those states are, they still have discrimination issues. So that's what Congress said. Uh, That's why uh, communities of color and civil rights groups and voting rights groups like like Southwest Voter are pushing for Congress and the U.S. Senate to pass the John Lewis redistricting, uh, I'm sorry, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. uh, That will allow for us to have, again, Section five to protect ourselves. Section five, part of the voting rights has been the tool that we have used, the legal tool, the legal challenge, which requires the Justice Department to okay any changes on elections. 
that doesn't apply only to redistricting, but it applies to changing a precinct, less voting sites, less voting hours. All of that stuff allowed us to challenge a city, a state, a county somewhere where they were going to uh, uh, dilute the vote. And so we don't have that anymore. However, we do have Section 2, and you are correct, in the last case, um, it watered it down a little bit, so we have to find a way to protect ourselves. But we have excellent representation with Maldiv. Maldiv was our lawyer last cycle. And this cycle, uh, we're working with Maldiv. And, and if and when we sue, and we believe we will sue, we will end up back in court. Uh, I am confident that we will be able to, to make a good fight. Uh, we also have a new challenge in addition to no longer having Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. We also have a different composition before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, it is now uh, six to three uh, in favor of, of um, efforts that are not going to help us. People argue that the judges are, are going to be fair, but time will tell. You, you talked a little bit about, about the issues that, that we saw with District 23, which is a, a district that the, those of us in San Antonio are, are always follow very closely because it's one of the few swing districts in the state of Texas. And it, it includes a part of San Antonio. It stretches out uh, to, to West Texas, includes uh, El Paso County. And um, you, you, know, you talked about the issue of um, you know performing uh counties or performing areas uh, versus, you know, non-performing ones and how that, that would affect the, the, you know, the, how the, how the district would, would do. I'm curious, you know, I, I know we're, it's hard to say at this point, but what are your, your, your thoughts about what might happen with this district, which is currently held by Republican Tony Gonzalez, but has generally seen very close elections over the years? Well, I think that they might end up doing what they did with uh, the, the Republicans in charge of drawing the the districts this cycle, I think they might uh, copy what they did with the 27th. If you remember the 27th in the last cycle, uh, where Ortiz was the was the um, member of Congress and it was a Latino seat, and so they made it a very safe Republican seat because right now the district uh, uh, and the 16th, which is sitting next next uh, door next in El Paso, mm-hmm. I forgot it, the 16th as well. The 16 is by El Paso. Um, it, it doesn't have enough people right now, given mm-hmm. the new numbers. So it's going to have to come from the 23rd. So then the 23rd has to figure out where it reaches out for its numbers. Since it looks like the 28th and the 15th, perdón, the 28th and the 34 also do not have enough population, given the new uh, numbers that are required for a new district. So I think that what they may do is they may move up towards the uh, Midland area and select precincts that are more conservative and make it more a, of a conservative district mm-hmm. uh, than a swing than a swing district. And frankly, it's a Latino district. So it's a question of those who uh, want to take that uh, seat, as in the case of Rodriguez some time back, uh, Congressman Rodriguez and mm-hmm. Pete Gallegos, is to turn out the Latino vote. Uh, which requires more contact because it's a younger electorate than than the than the Republicans, which are an older uh, electorate that turns out to vote and are seem to be more energized every year. You see that already in places like California that is holding its its uh, re- uh, recall election. Um, I want to ask you a little bit uh, 
we, I know that you're dealing with the numbers uh, as they are now and as, as, as the, the numbers that the census produced, but during the process um, of, of executing the census, there were concerns because, you know, it was happening during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we also had a situation where uh, former President Trump, then President Trump, uh, tried unsuccessfully uh, to exclude undocumented immigrants from the census count. And I guess what I'm curious uh, about is to get your thoughts on um, how, you know, what kind of chilling effect these things may have had, even if uh, ultimately uh, undocumented immigrants were included in the count, um, just the the fact that this issue was raised. Um, and of course, the, you know, the effects of the pandemic when, when uh, trying to collect this kind of information, what, what, what kind of effect do you think this had? I think, I think that we've had a major undercount for a number of reasons. One of them, and it, it was a chilling uh, negative impact on the Latino community and the count and other communities as well, particular communities that are immigrant. So let me just say that I think that we had a dramatic undercount. I really believe we were going to have three to four mm -hmm. new congressional seats as a result of the projected numbers that we saw growing. But then we have the pandemic and the pandemic was an issue. We also had uh, for the first time, the first president in our history that we can remember is the last, at least the last 50 years or more mm -hmm. that refused to invest real dollars to count mm -hmm. uh, those that uh, we had to count every 10 years. So let's, let's remind ourselves that it's every cycle that we have a uh, census count there, no matter how effective and efficient and the invest in, investment of dollars exists, we still expect an undercount, particularly an undercount of children. This is true in past census counts that children, Latino children were not counted. Uh, but we also expect it to be a minimal number compared to what we expect this year, uh, this last year that took place. So first is the the pandemic. It caused a negative impact on the count. Second, um, the the pandemic uh, brought the count to uh, be de determined in a late phase. Second or third, rather, uh, Trump refused to invest the resources that needed to be invested. And and the the effect of attacking the immigrant community and then saying that, that the immigrant community and the undocumented would not be counted, which by the way, we sued and we won that effort again. Mm -hmm. So all those things played a negative. Uh, finally, I think that there were a lot of people that were either deported or self-deported. And so that has a negative impact as well. Honestly, today, none of us know for, mm -hmm. for a fact how many people Mm -hmm. are still live, residing in the United States and do not live here. I can tell you this, in a couple of years, we will have again another sort of statistical effort to see how, how the cities and the counties and the states have grown. And I think we're going to be able to then determine that we had a terrible undercount. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to be 1%, 10% or 20, but I think it's going to be huge. Yeah, we could see a really uh, shocking or stunning uh spike in the numbers, uh, you know, as you said, because, because we, we, we're not, we didn't probably get an accurate, uh, representation of what, where things stand right now. Um, and, and what are the, what are the real world impacts of that undercount? Well, it has an impact on, on during the redistricting, the representation and during every, every year, the dollars, the federal dollars that come to your city that have impact mm -hmm. on schools, 
building infrastructure, everything that has to do with the resources that you that you would be guaranteed given the undercount. We know that there is always an undercount in San Antonio uh, because these the schools have children have more than twenty children per per teacher. Mm-hmm. If you have more than twenty children per teacher, that means that there was an undercount the year that the year the previous time that there was a, a count. We are going to see that very, very, um, very soon. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the state's new election law, uh, which was passed recently um, and, uh, you know, spurred uh, Texas House Democrats uh, to to break quorum to go to Washington, D.C. for a period of weeks. Um, this the census is occur- is occurring at the same time that we are you know we're in the process of, of adjusting to what this this law is going to mean and it, among other things it it you know bans drive through voting uh, and bans twenty four hour voting um, prevents counties from sending um, uh, unsolicited mail ballot applications uh, to voters um, and it, it seems to give more more uh, power to partisan poll watchers at uh, at voting sites. I was curious to get your thoughts on on you know the impact. Uh, I know that that getting out the vote is 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 you know this has been your life work. And uh, what do you make of of this this new law and the effect that it might have? Well, it's 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 hard to give it a a good um, a good um, word for the feelings that I have. Mm-hmm. However, we I can tell you we sued. We sued the state again and again and again, and this mm-hmm. time it's no different. Uh, the fact that it has permission to allow for partisans to stand face to face. If I go vote, if you go vote, if anyone mm-hmm. goes to vote, they're going to van a poner su nariz contra nuestra nariz, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, their nose, nose to nose, mm-hmm. checking in to see what we do. That is intimidating. We know that intimidation happens in elections when they're trying to prevent people from voting. Now they can be dressed as INS officials, not that not that the people that are voting are undocumented because they're citizens. However, it sends a chilling effect mm-hmm. uh, that partisans are going to be doing this. The fact that uh, the state uh, claims that it cares about voting and is trying to protect voting and that it's doing this because there's um, uh, fraud, voting fraud, is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Uh, The governor, who at the time was the attorney general, spent over a million dollars looking for cases of those fraud uh, cases where people voted they weren't supposed to vote. Let's be very clear. The undocumented understand they're undocumented. They know their status. They know the rules. They do not want to be deported. Therefore, they're not going to cause any problems. So that is not an issue. And uh, they have not found any any cases. If they find something, it's usually uh, a citizen who did something, you know, with error. That's the case Mm -hmm. in one of the cases in Dallas. That's the case in another case in Houston. But it is not real. So this is really an organized, and let me say that again, an organized effort by the Republicans to stop Latinos and Blacks from voting, not only in Texas, mm-hmm. but in other states. In Georgia, they have a similar state. Last in the 2020s, we gave food away in what we call feed the polls in in, um, in San Antonio, Austin, and Dallas. Right. We did that also in Atlanta. We can't do that anymore. So, so for us at, at Southwest Voter and communities that are fighting to make sure that we have the right to vote, we are frustrated and we're tired with this shenanigans. Mm-hmm. But I tell you, we will go for the long haul for the fight. 
I am concerned. I am not, I'm confident that we will do well, but I am concerned with the new makeup of the Supreme Court, six to three. Mm-hmm. Six in favor of keeping uh, Latinos from voting. And uh, I'm just very, very concerned. I know that they claim and they, the argument is that the United States Supreme Court justice is fair. I, we will have we will see this uh, when we end up there and we will end up there because that's what happened in the last uh, suits that we have had. Is there anything to, uh, to the, the argument which some, some make that um, that voters and particularly uh, uh, people of color who are maybe uh, in response to these kinds of restricting voting laws, which we've seen in Texas and other states, that could it, it could have the effect of, of, of um, maybe a, a kind of a catalyst or a spark for people saying, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you, um, you know, have, I, I'm not gonna let you do what you, what you're intending to do here. And the people may, may come out um, in bigger numbers or there may be, you know, there may be some, uh, it, it could kind of backfire on the people who are trying to uh, maybe suppress uh, voter turnout in some way. I think what you just said is accurate. Uh, I think people are going to say basta, ya no, and they're mm-hmm. going to show up mm-hmm. to vote. But our position at South Dakota has always been uh, you take the fight and the way you fight is you organize, you register new voters, you turn out to vote, and you make sure that you take the fight from the position of we will win. Mm-hmm. We will win. If you stay home, if you do nothing, then of course they're going to continue to steal our vote. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to, to ask you something which, which comes up every, certainly comes up every 10 years when we go through this redistricting process, which is, you know, the, the proper way of handling it. We have some states who, that have independent redistricting commissions. Texas, uh, you know, has a, uh, has a, a partisan process. They have the, the legislature handling this. Um, would you, I know there's no perfect um, approach to this, but would you prefer to see Texas have some kind of independent commission doing it? I'm not convinced that a commission is the right way to go. Uh, I do know that the legislature, as, as you know, gives us headaches. And I expect the one thing is certain we can take it to the bank. We will be mm-hmm. in court yeah. uh, this redistricting cycle. But that happens also with commissions and observing what California has done. Now, this is its second time around with a commission. The last time around, <clears throat> California uh, did not produce the kind of opportunities that we expected to see. Uh, in other words, we expected one new Senate seat in, in San Jose, California. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, no, I'm not convinced yet. Um, I'd like to reserve that decision. I know that the left is trying to push for commissions. That's certainly what is in the People's Act. Uh, but I am, I'm very worried that the commissions are, uh, people who end up serving in commissions do not necessarily understand the process mm-hmm. or are not necessarily interested in the kinds of things that we are. So I'm not sure yet what is the best way to go. Lydia Camarillo, thank you so much for being part of our podcast. We really appreciate it. And it's going to be interesting to see what uh, what happens in the coming weeks with uh, the redistricting process. Thank you so much. Thank you for this invitation. And remember, register and vote. So we'll do some